Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Connor Boyle here from Intelligence Squared. Today on the podcast, we have the latest episode of Tides of Transformation and Oil Story, a brand new podcast from Intelligence Squared. Our host is the broadcaster and physicist Helen Chersky, and in this episode, we're asking who owns oil and what are the implications for the energy transition. Here's Helen with more. In 1973, a geopolitical crisis caused global oil prices to jump by 300%, and suddenly, extracting oil from beneath the sea started to look like a much more profitable proposition. Soon after this, in August 1974, at a spot 120 miles northeast of Aberdeen, a new oil field was discovered beneath the slate grey waves of the North Sea. In the grand scheme of constant North Sea oil discoveries at the time, the Buchan oil field was considered a small find and probably a risky bet. The expectation was that it would be emptied within five years. But this small patch of the North Sea has been passed from company to company over the past 50 years, with stakes owned by companies from Britain, Canada, China and Spain. And it's now partly in the hands of a private equity firm. And that pattern of shifting ownership is far from unusual. So how did the ownership of the North Sea oil sector come to be so complicated? Who wants these assets and why? And how has that shifted over time? There is a fascinating story here. And in the next half hour, in the second episode of this podcast series, we'll be getting to the bottom of it. Welcome to Tides of Transformation, an oil story, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Helen Chersky. For most people over the past few decades, the oil industry has operated in relative invisibility. We bought its products, but we never really questioned how it all worked and why. Today, there are a lot of calls for the oil industry to change and even to just disappear. But when you've got an industry that's deeply woven into our communities, our economic policy, our energy use and the structure of our country, any change for the better requires a deep interrogation of the thing we want to change. And that's what this podcast series is all about, drawing on recent research undertaken with the support of the Economic and Social Research Council and with input from experts inside and outside the industry, we're going to be piecing together how the oil industry really works in order to examine how it needs to change. In this episode, we're going to be talking about ownership. Who owns UK oil assets? How did these people end up with them? And how is the ownership of this sector changing? Joining me to do that, I'm delighted to welcome our panellists for today, Gavin Bridge from the University of Durham and Alexander Dodge from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. 
Gavin and Alex have spent the past four years researching the UK oil sector as part of a project called Fraying Ties, supported by the UK's Economic and Social Research Council. Also joining us is Keith Myers, President of Research at Westwood Global Energy, and Dr Valerie Marcel, the project lead for the New Producers Group, a South-South knowledge-sharing network of 30 emerging oil and gas producer, producer countries. So let's, just to start with, go back to the book and oil field. Gavin, why... Why is this example a good place to start this discussion? Yes, the Buck and Oil Field is in many ways somewhat unremarkable. As you pointed out, it's not the biggest, it's not the most distant from shore, it's not the largest. But we might also think of it as being typically extraordinary in the sense that it reveals things about the offshore that are often less visible. So Buchan's an old field, as you pointed out, it was brought into production about 40 years ago, and it's now being redeveloped, extending the life of a mature basin and this redevelopment story has been a feature of the UK offshore, particularly since the peak period of production at the turn of the century, alongside some frontier-type developments such as those west of Shetland. And I think you know, we think of this field as being embedded in national territory. It's part of Britain's North Sea on the UK continental shelf. But at the same time, it's embedded in international corporate networks and financial flows. So who's managing it and how it's being managed are not all within the control of the British state. And this site in the UK then has been connected, as you pointed out, to some very different places, to China, to Spain, to US pension funds. So we think of the, the North Sea uh, oil as being relatively stable and, and, and enduring, an enduring presence for half a century. Um, but this uh, uh, field, like many others, has changed hands multiple times. There's been a churn of ownership, particularly in that post-peak period. Um, and once this was part of an integrated system, it was owned and operated by the long-standing producer, BP, which owned the field, it owned the pipeline, and it owned the onshore refinery. And now it's being operated pretty much as a standalone asset. The final thing I'll say about this is that it's mainly oil. So we hear a lot about the transition and the role of gas, and that really is an important part of the North Sea. But oil is still attracting investment. Well, let's pick up on just to, you know, let's clarify some things to start with here. So you mentioned what is there to own? Are we talking about physical assets, or are we talking about rights, or is there something else? Like, what are the components that can be owned if you're talking about the oil sector? So, this is just sub subsurface resources: the oil in the ground, the oil beneath the seabed, is owned by the state. It's a state state property. And the deal, if you like, is that companies get access to that through a licensing process. And that license enables firms to explore for and get, that's the language, and produce petroleum and well, oil and gas from the UK continental shelf. And that license, though, enables a lot of capital to flow into that space. Most of these projects are quite capital intensive. Funds need to be raised in order that, for that development to take place. And what we're seeing here in that transfer of ownership is a shift in the forms of capital and in the ownership structures that surround some of these licenses. So it all started off being the same people, but it isn't necessarily that way uh, now. And um, so, Alex, when we look at all the sites in the you know, North Sea oil sites, who owns them today? You can sort of distinguish between who owns the licenses, so that's the right to extract oil, and you can distinguish between who owns the infrastructure, so the pipelines and the refineries and the oil terminals. 
And this is quite differentiated in terms of who owns the oil fields. You have your traditional actors like BP and Shell who have been here for years and years. But then you have a fairly good amount which is owned by Harbor Energy. Harbor Energy was a company which originally started as Chrysler, which was private equity owned up until about a few years ago and when they did what was called a reverse takeover of Premier Oil, which is another British company. And through that reverse takeover, they basically reorganized the company so that was listed on the, uh, the London Stock Exchange and became Harbor Energy. So, so that's the example of oil extraction. But then you have the, the terminals. For example, Enquest owns the Solomavo. SR owns the Northampton and the Kingsbury oil terminal. Uh, you also have the pipeline systems. For example, the 40s pipeline system is owned by Ineos. So there's this very complicated picture of lots of companies whose na names pe most people are not familiar with. I mean, if you follow cycling, you might know of Ineos because they sponsor a cycling team. But other than that, there's this picture of these bits are all owned by companies no one, whose names no one would recognize. And um, they're just words that might buy each other or own each other or merge. But it's a complicated structure today. Well, let's see how we've got there then, how we arrived in this situation, because I think when it started, that was not the situation, right? So so let's talk about who's left and who's arrived. Who did own things that doesn't own so much anymore? No, you're, you're, you're exactly right, as you said before, that you know, this tended to be owned by pretty much large integrated oil companies such as BP, Shell, and Total. And it comes down to these to these refineries and pipelines and terminals, BP, Shell, and Total have pretty much sold off these assets. So BP, for example, they sold Grangemouth to refinery to Ineos in 2005. They sold Northampton and Kingsbury oil terminal and the UK oil pipeline system to the Indian-owned company SR in 2019. And they sold the 40s pipeline to Ineos in 2017. So let's pick up on that then. So why is that? Why, if you are an oil company or a fossil fuel company, why are you selling assets that ha still have some value? You know, they're still worth something to somebody. So why why was Shell and BP trying to get out? Basically, the margins were too small. I mean, most of this was sold, uh, you know, 2012 and also 2017. And these companies are looking at their portfolios and they're saying, okay, we need to keep assets that have high margins that are going to give us high rates of re return. And, and refineries and oil terminals have generally been a low-margin uh, business. And uh, this is something that hasn't just happened in the UK. It's, it's happened all over the world that many companies have sold their refineries. So let's pick up on who has come in then and why they've come in. So Keith, perhaps you have a comment on this. When Shell and BP sold these things off because the margins were too slim, who picked up that baton? Well, I mean, over the years, you get waves of incomers. We had uh, a wave of utility companies uh, a decade or so ago who went into the upstream. It became the trend for utility companies to acquire upstream assets, particularly gas, but also some oil to their income streams. And we saw that wave of utilities come in and, and largely they've gone out. You saw waves of sometimes foreign national oil companies coming into the to the UK sector. They come in and they go out. These The tide comes in and it goes out again. And most recently we had a tide of private equity. Because I think 
in the early days of the North Sea, it was all about technical engineering. Engineering ruled and technical engineering was the name of the game. Now it's about financial engineering. And there are, for private equity companies, they see the opportunity to buy late life assets and, and through various different techniques, turn them into, into a profit because they still do generate revenues. What they, they're not material enough for the big companies now because the production levels are low and don't rank very highly on, on uh, big company portfolios or certainly some of their assets don't, the ones that the very late life assets. So companies come, can come in, pick up late life assets and, and generate returns from them. And, and some of the returns are really quite eye-watering that uh, are still possible even from these late life assets. Gavin, you've been studying this. Does that reflect your view of things? I like this way of thinking about it, that this used to be technical engineering that's turned into financial engineering. Why is that happening? I would like to just interject one other point, if I may, and th and that's the question of, of who's left. And so we've been talking quite a bit here about Shell and BP. So Shell and BP are still present in the basin. What they've been doing is basically optimizing their portfolio, selling off a range of assets that have then been picked up by some of these new entrants. I think the, the other thing to say about who's left is that a lot of the history of the, of the North Sea was developed by American capital. Uh, so it was an American independent, the Hamilton brothers who first produ who produced the first oil in the basin. And in fact, part of the logic was the North Sea needed to develop quickly at pace. And the way to do that was to invite in American capital to do that. And it's typically been the US uh, integrated firms who've been exiting the basin, as well as that reprofiling of assets by European majors like Total, Shell and BP. And then companies coming in have been, as, as Keith has said, there's been a series of waves. So uh, yeah, we saw an entry of Canadian capital in the early 2000s. Uh, there was a wave of Japanese investment into the basin. And one of the features that's been conspicuous over the last decade is the entry of Chinese capital, primarily through their purchase of Canadian companies. But as Keith accurately points out, the entrance of private equity has been a major feature of the last decade. There's some re broad reasons for that. This has occurred in a period of relatively low interest rates. That's made it difficult for the traditional raises of finance, public equities to raise money. And at the same time, it's meant that bank loans have been quite low interest rate. And that's been an ideal ground for the private equity financial model to take root. So they are so basically they're not interested in what the asset is. They're just interested in the idea that this is something that if you pull enough levers, some money goes in and more money comes out. The private equity model is based around a fund, a pooled fund of capital that's locked up for a period of somewhere between five to twelve years. And the goal of that of that fund is to raise its value around a certain internal rate of return. And near the end of the life of that fund to basically realize that value by typically selling off the assets that sit beneath it. This is a model that's been developed and used very widely in the development of US shale reserves, and it's entered into the North Sea over the last, during the last decade. Well, let's have a look at why this all looks like this in a bit more detail, rather than the financial and technical aspects. Let's have a look at the people involved. For some insight on that, we're going to hear from Nana de Graff, a member of the Fraying Ties project team and an Associate Professor of International Relations at Vrije University in Amsterdam. 
Nana has been looking into the elite networks connected to the boardrooms of oil firms. And we asked her what the significance of these networks was and to give us some examples of how there is sometimes a revolving door between oil firms and wider society. We think of power and especially corporate power in the oil sector. We tend to think of big oil companies, but we tend not to think about the people that are directing these companies. So the individuals that sit in boardrooms and planes and they formulate the strategies and make the key decisions and shape the governance around the investments and disinvestments and ownership and control in this industry. Then when you open up that black box of the firm and you, you look at the people in charge of them, you also find that these individuals are, of course, themselves embedded in social networks that are often elite networks. And, and that this social embedding and, and the social background also shapes their agency. Let's call him, say, Mr. X, because yes, in our sample, the vast majority are male. So Mr. X, he first built like this stellar business career within Petroleum during several decades, even becoming a CEO of the company, before entering politics, when he became a minister as well as member of the House of Lords. And then after his term in, in government, so this, this ministerial position, he moved back into the corporate world and then uh, joining the boards of, of several firms, oil and gas firms, but also fin financial firms and, and other big multinational corporations. Another typical career path uh, we found that was, uh, well, we can call him Mr. Z then. <laughs> uh, so in this case, and we found this to happen quite often, uh, he worked first for more than three decades in public service, including often very high-level positions, in this case as a foreign policy advisor to a then British pr prime minister and also having ambassador positions abroad. And after that, he became an independent director for one of the lead oil and gas companies in our sample, while at the same time, he also became director at a U.S. defense company and member of an advisory board of a British strategic advisory firm, which is established and staffed by four MI6 sorry, <laughs> officers. And that is also a quite typical career path that we found to exist in our sample of, of oil directors. So now I think that perhaps the cynics in the world might not be surprised that once you get a very well-paid, influential job in, in one um, institution, that you then just kind of move around the boardroom of the others. But Alex, how, what's the effect of this? If, this is, if it happens once or twice, perhaps you could say, well, people move jobs, that's all right. But if this is a systematic pattern that there's people just kind of rotate around the same boardrooms, what's the effect of that? Well, I think the effects of that is that uh, through through these uh, these affiliations uh, that uh, that different board directors have with uh, with uh, different corporations or with different uh, uh, political actors, basically what they they build from this is, is social capital. Uh, so they're able to build social capital, the ability to to use leverage. Uh, you know, who you know and what you know and that kind of thing uh, in terms of, of what you do next. And they also build a quite a bit amount of uh, prestige. And essentially what, what, what happens then is that the, the interests among the oil elite becomes a kind of mediating factor. So mediating the interest between, uh, between uh, corporations and politics. So you have this problem that government, for example, is supposed to represent the people. But if the people in government all have the same worldview because they come from the same industry you've got a problem because it's not representative. So you, you kind of skew your decisions a little bit. 
let's get on to the government and actually how the government how how government policy got us here. So Keith, there's something that I think might, you know a lot of people would be sort of aware of, which is that you know uh, well Thatcher, but even before her, you know there were decisions made by the UK government about who was going to own North Sea assets. Tell us a little bit about the decisions that were made about whether it was public or private and the consequences that had. Yeah, so in the, the early 70s when the big fields were discovered, 40s and um, Bren to the two two biggest fields they were in the early 70s, that, that coincided with that period of where oil global oil prices trebled. And the in the Labour government in seven uh, the seventy four seventy nine Labour government they they created the British National Oil Corporation. Uh, UK had a national corporate. It had several national oil companies. It had the British the Gas Council, as well as the as as BNOC, and the UK state had a big had a significant shareholding in BP. Right through to 1987, oil was discovered in the early 70s, but the significant revenues to the state didn't start until 1979, and that almost exactly coincided with the Thatcher government coming in. And it peaked in 85 at a, around about 12 percent. It was over 10 percent of of government revenue was coming from oil and gas from zero, um, and that essentially allowed uh, the that essentially funded the the Thatcher revolution, and as we know. Um, Privatization became the uh, uh, the main mantra of the uh, of, of that uh, of that government, and uh, one of the first th- things they did was was privatize um, BNOC through uh, Brit Oil, became listed, and then later was bought by uh, BP. As I mentioned, it, it sold the BP shareholding, then it privatized British Gas. Uh, its gas assets and and also its oil assets through a company called uh, Enterprise Oil. So that set the scene for an, an a, a completely private um, oil sector in in the U- UK. In complete contrast to Norway, which Alexander will be very familiar with. So to this day, fifty eight percent of oil and gas produced on the Norwegian sector. And, and remember that it's the same geology, uh, just split by. Uh, an international boundary. Uh, on the other side of the boundary, they went Norway went for a completely different model, um, where uh, it's a mixed model which is dominantly dominated by state-owned companies. So, fifty-eight percent of the oil and gas today is still produced through Statoil and uh, through state-owned um, entities. Uh, whereas in the UK sector, it was a hundred percent, hundred percent private. And that kind of set the scene uh, for the, um, you know, for, for for the industry for the next uh, next fifty years. So that's interesting. I've heard a lot of people talk about the UK sector being private, but it wasn't until the research for this program that I realised this had ever been public. You know, that we had a national oil company like Norway has. Of course, there's now all these discussions about windfall taxes to try and claw some of that revenue back. Um, but just, I want to just step out for a second. We'll come back to some of that. I just want to step out into what government policy, you know, because obviously government makes policy for this country, but it also expresses an opinion about what other countries should do, and particularly emerging oil and gas producer countries. And Valerie, I just wondered if you could comment on um, what what the UK government was saying to, has been saying to other, uh, you know, to emerging producer economies 
while it was doing all this at home? For years, I think the UK had a quite um, an active foreign development um, program where it was trying to support emerging producers in particular with better governance, you know, setting up their laws uh, for best effect, uh, building up their institutions, all with the idea of let's make sure that doesn't end up like a Nigeria um, scenario. I mean, I think a lot of Nigerians themselves would, would say that their oil sector has been a failure but in terms of, of governance because there's been extensive corruption. There hasn't been windfalls to local people. Um, there's massive plundering of the pipelines, um, environmental damage. It's, it's not brought a kind of wealth and governance that would have been desired. So the UK government was trying to help other countries avoid that. And so was there a double standard then between what the UK government was saying at home and what it was telling other people to do? Well, I think the double standard really emerged as the climate crisis really became at the forefront of all of our concerns. Then there was all this pressure, I think, on the UK government particularly after 2021 when the IEA put out that report called Net Zero to 2050, showing that there should be no new oil and gas projects. We don't need them. And if we develop new oil and gas projects, we won't meet the 1.5 degree warming target. So that all of that led to a lot of public pressure, I think, on capitals in the G7 that basically wanted to continue to develop oil and gas at home, but found it quite convenient to say, well, no new projects outside our borders, and we won't be supporting that anymore. And so the UK then became quite, I think, what it, the message it was giving internationally to low-income countries and the message it was giving domestically to oil companies was it became very different. And it won't, uh, I think now it's instructed, like other G7 capitals, it's instructed the multilateral development banks no longer to provide public finance for even gas to power projects in Africa, un unless in, in the most exceptional circumstances. Okay, well, we'll come back to how much control the UK government's actually got over the, what it thinks of as the UK oil sector. But I just wanted to come back to Norway because, you know, we've heard it mentioned a couple of times, Alex. And could you just just set out a summary of what it what it is that Norway did? Well, I mean, basically what, uh, you know, one thing is the, the, the high tax that Norway has taken off uh, out of the uh, sector and, and the ownership of, of a lot of the oil and gas reserves through the state-owned uh, company called Oil, which is now Equinor. But another aspect uh, that Norway has done is it's done different activities to try to spread the value of the oil sector throughout the uh, country, particularly in the places outside of the key capital regions like Oslo. Uh, so Stavanger was basically a project to kind of regionalize the, the industry. And, and Norway has done a pretty good job in terms of developing a quite a far-reaching oil uh, service sector, um, and basically this is spread throughout the entire coastline. So, so in some ways, Norway has a lot more to lose uh, from eventual transition away from oil and gas than uh, than the UK uh, might have. So, so there is that uh, that sort of challenging. 
But at the same time, you know, we do have these state-owned oil companies that do own the refineries, unlike uh, unlike the UK, where, where this is uh, fragmented, that do own the infrastructure. Uh, and there's a good possibility for collaboration and a capacity for collaboration among different actors with uh, with government steering to go into new sectors such as hydrogen and carbon capture and storage storage and uh, offshore wind. And of course, the great conundrum of Norway is that, you know, if you're interested in uh, cleaner technologies like, you know, electric cars and that kind of thing, Norway is way ahead of everyone else. But it does it. It funds it by selling oil <laughs> to other people. Um, and there's this, you know, it's really interesting that Norway is also held up as a sort of internally almost as a clean energy pioneer. And yet it's only got the money for that because it, it held on to its oil industry. Um, and Valerie, just briefly, so when it comes to other countries outside the UK, how does we've got, we've sort of painted this picture of perhaps the UK being the far end of the privatisation, the pri private end of things, and Norway is far up the public ownership end of things. For other oil producing countries, how do they do it? Are they mostly privately owned or mostly state owned? Or is it is it generally, is it in the middle? Well, I think established historical producers from the ones we usually would think of, like from the Middle East or Mexico or Venezuela, those those countries have really relied on nationalization and national players to to take the lead in and are really dominant in developing this sector. But for emerging oil and gas producers um, that have come more recently, and for most African producers, the situation is much more they will have a national oil company, but it's not really, it doesn't have the kind of the might to take on the responsibility for a field. And so it's a, it sort of takes a, a small stake in fields and they rely on international oil companies. They look for the super majors where they can. And if they can't, they go for more minor companies like the ones that are now dominating the, the UK North Sea. So, Gavin, this picture we're painting that, you know, the, the UK made these decisions, uh, it was privately owned, and then since then it's fragmented. You know, we've got bits and pieces of of the North Sea oil sector are owned by different people. What's the consequence of that? What difference does this fragmented ownership make to what actually happens on the ground? Yeah, I think there's two things we can say there. The first would be that these individual assets are wired into the global economy in different ways. So that they're subject to different drivers, different strategies. And as we might come on to shortly, that raises questions of steering in a context of net zero or concerns about energy security or issues of energy affordability. There is an issue there of that fragmentation of how one can drive a sector in a particular direction. So if those assets are plugged into the global economy in different ways, that means if decisions are being made in Oslo or in Beijing or in Paris or in Abu Dhabi, there's a question there about what influence does the UK state have on that, on the direction and the operation of those firms. And the second aspect, I think, is directly about the fragmentation of those assets in the UK themselves. So the, the, the development of a field that's owned by a different company to the one that owns the infrastructure, the one that owns the refinery, individual projects having multiple firms involved in them. There's issues there of the efficiency of that process. There's also issues there around coordination. And I think both that question of kind of the, the global connections to UK asset and the internal fragmentation raise questions about the national interest and the public good. I mean, ownership 
you could say, well, does it matter who owns it? But fundamentally, if you want some kind of control over what happens on the UK continental shelf, we hear the UK government now talk about the UK oil industry as though it's as as though it does have control, as though it does have a say over what happens. Is that true? Does it? Or is this just a sort of is it just coincidental now that it sits on our bit of continental shelf, but actually this is a global asset and it's not got very much to do with us at all? Well, I mean governments you know, governments write the rules and write the laws. So they they have um they 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 can influence strongly um how the industry operates through the laws and regulations that uh, that govern the industry and through having an effective um regulator with uh with with powers uh, uh, strong powers and strong capability it was only in the 2014-15 that it actually set up an independent regulator or semi-independent regulator the oil and gas authority which now changed its name but by that time it was it was still very difficult because um the the industry is very fractionated in the uk sector part of that is geology and i want to get as a geologist i need to get this in there is a there are fundamental differences between the geology on the uk side and the norwegian side although it's the same geological basin there are a lot more smaller fields a lot lot more smaller fields on the uk side norway has been is a very very lucky country in many ways and and one of the things it got all main most of the big big fields are on the norwegian side uh and so they have lower operating costs they have fewer fields um and the UK side are lots of small fields, um, uh, and so it's a much more fractionated. And, and to some extent, the fractionation of the industry reflects the the the, the, ge- the fractionated geology, the more fractionated geology that we have on the UK side. But the UK, the, the government has inf- influences through regu- the regulator. Gavin, I think you wanted to come in there. A key question here in, in terms of control over the sector is how do you, what do you view as the problem for the sector is the problem one if about maximizing the value to the uk population or is the pro problem primarily one of attracting investment into a basin with the expectation that the value questions kind of somehow pull out after that and the uk government has, has approached the, the north sea primarily as an investment problem so it's tried to create conditions that will attract that investment it's been agnostic about where that investment comes from and it has recognised that in that post-peak period, the problem of developing multiple small fields, as Keith has said, requires a, a structure that basically allows smaller firms to come in and, and see some financial gain from that process. So in the early 2000s, the development of a licensing system that, that encouraged that. So what we have is a structure, a fragmented structure that is not an accident. It's a consequence of a policy regime that has been developed and cultivated over time and that has primarily seen the problem as one of attracting investment into a mature basin. Okay, so let's then come to the critical question then, which is that we're talking about an industry which I think everyone agrees needs to change. And plenty of international bodies, certainly the IPCC, have said oil and gas production has to stop. So the oil industry has to change. So I'm interested from each of you on the... Co- that we've described this fragmented ownership structure and the fact that it's shifted from technical engineering to financial engineering. And what I'm interested in now is... How and why that's going to matter when we look at the changes that are now facing the oil industry, the way it has to change and whether the the speed of that change and whether it happens 
So I know each of you have a different perspective on this. So let, let's start with Valerie. What's your view on how ownership changes what we do about, you know, shifting away from oil? Well, I think it, perhaps it's the regulatory strengths and political will and the signaling that's most critical, I would say, because if you compare the UK to, which is a declining basin that's focused on enhanced oil recovery and decommissioning, it's going to have its own set of challenges. And those are very different from the emerging producers that are now designing their sector for this new era against a lot of headwinds because a lot of the global north doesn't want them to proceed. But they're sort of thinking, well, can we design our sector to be lowest emissions design right, right? Rather, UK, it'll be much more focused on fixing the leaky pipes and trying to retrofit for lower emissions, which is much more expensive. And so I think for the for the UK to be successful on that, it would certainly have to have a, a political push. So, Keith, how do these ownership structures affect the changes that we, we have to see? And how does it make it easier or more complicated? It makes it more complicated. So it's important to make the point that the reinvestment rate in the North Sea, that's the proportion of operating cash flow, cash flow that's generated from operations post-tax that is reinvested in the North Sea has slipped to below 20%, which is historically very, very low levels. So less than 20% is being re reinvested. So how do we m ensure that more of that cash that's being generated from oil and gas gets reinvested to promote the energy transition? We also need to think about um, the, infra the infrastructure and what's going to happen to it. There are, there are efforts to try and repurpose that for carbon capture and storage. But frankly, the UK government's policies are a bit incoherent on energy, as every pretty much every British government for, the, you know, for, for decades, you could argue that energy policy has been a bit incoherent. But in terms of putting the policies in place that are going to facilitate carbon capture and storage, I'm dubious. At, at the moment, I think the jury's out. I think that a bit incoherent is one of the more diplomatic phrases I've heard used for that. Alex, this question of how does this ownership structure matter for what happens next? What's your view? Well, I, I mean, if you, you know, again, that political sort of incoherence, there, there's often this sort of idea, for example, in the North Sea transition deal that we can somehow collaborate or work together with the British. Uh, national oil sector to achieve certain aims such as maximizing economic recovery and, and net zero but you know as we've shown with the you know with the the fragmentation of this ownership nor uk doesn't really have a national oil sector that it can draw onto the same way that norway can draw onto its national uh oil sector primarily because it has a company like equinor which is the main producer uh there really all the uk has is carrots and sticks and one of the problems with this fragmented ownership is what carrots and what sticks work is very much differentiated between what kind of company we're talking about. So, you know, we had our tra you know traditional companies like BP, but uh, but then you have the companies like uh, Sinuk uh, or private equity companies. Some companies are here only for production. Other companies are here only for exploration. Uh, you know, some companies here are only here for on the infrastructure. So, so, so you have to, 
you would have to be able to coordinate all these uh, kind of aspects. And and again, you know, you know, you might think, okay, well, we have BP and Shell as our as our national uh, sort of oil sector, but you know, as we were referring to our corporate elite networks, one of the big findings that uh, Nana and I have had is that BP and Shell are actually much more American in terms of their affiliations uh, among the board directors, just as much American as they are uh, British. So you don't even have this, and that's a big difference from Equinor, where a lot of the affiliations are in Norway. So you don't even have that kind of national state actor, which you could go and you could say, okay, now you need to develop the reservoirs so that they're uh, capable for carbon capture or storage, or now you need to electrify uh, your LNG uh, plants to reduce the carbon emissions. So, so, uh, so you just have uh, it's it's much more difficult for the UK, I think, to achieve that kind of transition than uh, than it would be for other countries. So, Gavin, this all sounds like a bit of a mess. So, I mean, is are there any silver linings here, or is this just this kind of is the current ownership structure this just ball and chain that the UK is now stuck with if it wants to change anything about the its own oil sector? I think what I, would say, what I would say here is that UK oil production is now, what, a third of its peak level around 2000. Um, and there's been various efforts to try and revive that bit of an uptick after the Wood Review in 2014. Basically, we're in a period here of, of decline of a mature basin. And as has been pointed out, concerns about climate mitigation mean that we're into a period of effectively managed decline. So this composition of ownership that we've sketched out here raises questions not only about steering but basically about the capacity of those firms who are left holding assets at the end of the day and the capacity really to bring those to closure and there's a question there that that uh, uh, that, that problem of a managed decline is in tension i think with the fact that some firms continue to see opportunities here for the extraction of value where much of that value is in in financial terms goes to pension funds goes to particular asset managers and the broader contribution to the UK as a whole is diminished. All right. Well, I think that is a good place to finish. There's plenty more to say, but we are out of time for this podcast, but we're still only halfway through the series. So do join us next week when we'll be looking at licensing, a topic that's been the focus of fierce battles around the future of the UK energy sector especially with the recent announcement that the regulator has approved drilling at Rosebank, the largest untapped oil field in the UK. This was Tides of Transformation, an oil story. It was produced and edited by Isabella Soames. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared Business. For more episodes of this series, just search Tides of Transformation wherever you get your podcasts.